You're listening to Life of the Record, classic albums told by the people who made them. My name is Dan Nordheim. Mudhoney formed in Seattle, Washington in 1988 by Mark Arm, Steve Turner, Dan Peters, and Matt Lucan. Arm and Turner had been playing together in multiple bands, including Green River, before deciding to form Mudhoney. Green River had been signed to Sub Pop, so when Mudhoney formed, Bruce Pavitt agreed to pay for a recording session with Jack and Dino Engineering. From that session, Sub Pop released the Touch Me M6 single in the summer of 1988. At that point, they booked more studio time with Jack and Dino, to work on songs for an EP. Superfuzz Big Muff was eventually released in the fall of 1988. In this episode, for the 35th anniversary, Mark Arm and Steve Turner reflect on how the EP came together. This is the making of Superfuzz Big Muff. All right, uh, this is Mark Arm from the band Mudhoney, and I am talking about Super Fuzz Big Muff, our very first 12-inch release from 1988. Steve was given a, a Super Fuzz back in Green River days by uh, someone that he worked with at a, a sushi restaurant, and Steve had mentioned to him that, you know, he plugged into his amp and just his guitar just sounded thin and didn't do what he thought a guitar should do, and the next day the guy presented Steve with a super fuzz, which is kind of miraculous. And Steve then also got like a, a big muff. And so he played the big muff and I played his super fuzz. Our sound, like one of the things we, it might've been a sort of a defense mechanism, but like our thought was at the time was like, if we can clear the room, we're doing a job well done. Yeah, I met uh, Steve. I was introduced to him by Alex Shumway, who ended up later on being the drummer in Green River. And Alex uh, introduces like, hey, you guys are both straight edge. Like at the time, I wasn't drinking or smoking pot, and neither was Steve. Steve, I don't think, ever drank at all at that point. The thing was like at the time, I was still like, I was uh, experimenting with psychedelics. <laughs> so I was like, that's, you know, something that I might be able to learn something from, whereas everything else just seems like smashing yourself over the head with a hammer. And now, at this point in my life, I'm totally happy to smash myself over the head with a hammer. It turned out that Steve was one of the few people that I ever ran into that was like, hey, I like your band, talking about Mr. Epp, my first band. And so eventually he joined... My name is Steve Turner. I play guitar in Mudhoney and have for the last 35 years. I met Mark in 1982. I was going to a private school for my last, my senior year in high school, where I met Stone Gossard and Alex Shumway. And me and Alex were in line. We think it was going into the TSOL show at the Showbox, but it was the fall of 82. And Alex introduced me to Mark. And I was already aware of Mr. Epp and the Calculations. I really liked the 7-inch record that they did. So we just kind of became friends and started hanging out together. And nine months later, I joined Mr. Epp as second guitarist. And, you know, he was a big influence on me. Mark was three years older than me and knew more about music than I did at that point. Yeah, you know, we just became good friends and have remained good friends. You know, we're, it's a very long relationship. We've been in bands together now officially for 40 years together. That's crazy. When that band fell apart. Steve and I decided to start another one, and that was 
Ended up being Green River. We got brought Alex in and got Jeff Amon on bass and eventually Stone. We started Green River, me, Mark, Jeff Amon, and Alex Shumway in the spring of 1984. Jeff had been in a band called Deranged Diction that was still sort of not totally done, but kind of done. And uh, we thought Jeff would be a great bass player to have because he jumped around a lot and he played through a, a distortion box on like the Deranged Diction stuff. So... I got a job at a coffee shop called Raison Debt that Jeff worked at to try to convince Jeff to join a band with me and Mark because he wasn't a fan of Mr. Epp and the Calculations. And we convinced him that we were going to try to have a real band this time around. So he got on board with that. It changed fairly quickly. We got Stone Gossard in there on second guitar. He beefed up the sound quite a bit. And he brought a, a more classic rock thing to it, I think. You know, we were all kind of tired of hardcore. Well, I mean, I, we were all trying to figure out what to do after hardcore. And it seemed like there were a couple of paths that people were taking. Uh, one was sort of like kind of doing a more speed metal thing. Another one was just sort of kind of being more standard rock. Like, I guess like the replacements and Husker Du were kind of becoming. And then there was sort of like the weirder stuff, you know, like uh, the Buttle Surfers or Sonic Youth. And some people were like totally just getting into kind of glam, like L.A. glam. <laughs> Not like the sweet or something what had happened in the 70s. I mean, the first time I ever heard the first Motley Crue record, I was like, oh, this sounds a little bit like the sweet. So I thought that was kind of cool. And then I bought Shout at the Devil and thought like that was a terrible record. So that's kind of how <laughs> my flirtation with that stuff ended. Well, Green River, they were, I guess, more metal elements creeping into it. And I wasn't really a fan. I wasn't a metal dude at all. So I got kind of tired of and frustrated with what was going on. So I bailed out after a while where it was obvious I wasn't helping the band at all at that point. So I quit after the first record and they got much better without me. And then, uh, you know, Green River existed for a couple of years. Like Bruce Fairweather took Steve's place and people's like, idea of like what they wanted to play kind of began to verge, differentiate a little bit more. My point of view was I just didn't see that there was any realistic goals to achieve in music. My only goal was put out a seven inch. I was doing pretty good if I got there. You know, I couldn't see how it would be a career at the time. I was not open to that idea for myself. And, you know, that's, I guess, my own stubbornness and whatever. But uh, I just didn't see it working for any of them either. Clearly, I was wrong. <laughs> uh, the subject of me taking singing lessons, uh, vocal lessons, actually, definitely uh, came up. And, you know, I, I was just like, I... There was this vocal coach in West Seattle who, uh, you know, like, apparently Jeff Tate and a bunch of other Eastside metal guys, like, went to. And I was just like, I don't want to just... I want to have my own thing. You know, even if it sucks, I want to just approach vocals my own way instead of like the way you're supposed to or whatever. And, you know, in, in terms of that, I think like a couple of huge influences were at the time and still were like Iggy Pop and Jerry Rosley from the Sonics. And of course, like Nick Cave with the birthday party, you know, like there was nothing sweet about any of those people's voices. But they were all like super intriguing to me. And I remember John Bigley from the U-Men, he said, I'm not a singer, I don't sing, I vocalize. And I thought that was a pretty cool approach to things. When Green River broke up, I immediately contacted Steve. Me and Mark were still hanging around all the time and influencing each other musically. And... When Green River broke up, he called me that night saying Green River broke up and that we should do another band. I said, sure. The break in, in Green River was really obvious as soon as Mother Love Bone and Mudhoney formed. You know, I have a different opinion of Mother Love Bone now than I did in 1988. You know, I, I didn't like it. You know, now it's charming to me, you know. Um, and, you know, I love all the people involved. But uh, at the time, it was, it was like, it's just not my jam at all. And Steve and I had played in the Thrown Ups together while Green River was still happening. I played drums in that. So we were kind of in tune with each other musically, 
And we would get together and like listen to records and our feet and our hearts were more towards like the punk rock and like the underground sounds of especially stuff coming out of Australia. We were very influenced by really crude bands like Feed Time out of Australia, The Scientists and punk rock and obscure 60s nuggets type garage punk and psychedelic stuff. Stooges obviously were a, a cornerstone, but Mark and I had a very united front on what we kind of wanted to do, at least the perimeters, if you will. It was, you know, distorted guitars. He was going to play some slide guitar. We were, I wanted him back on guitar because I liked the way he played guitar. He was kind of a savant on the guitar and uh, it kept him grounded as well a little bit. It was new for me at the time to be like playing guitar and, and, like in Green River, basically Stone and Jeff and Bruce and, and Steve, like they, and Alex even, like they wrote all the music. And I think I was like fairly immature about it. Like my approach was like, oh, I have to sing over every part. <laughs> you know, I just kind of like, I didn't let the songs really breathe. So I kind of like overwrote lyrics. But I think it was just sort of a, out of a place of insecurity. Like, what am I going to do if I'm not singing? Am I just going to stand there? <laughs> and so, like, when Mudhoney started and I played, you know, like Steve was like, you have to play guitar. It was, I think that was kind of a two-pronged approach. One, because he just didn't want me, like, just jumping off the stage into the crowd all the time like I did in Green River. And it also kind of gave me something to do when there wasn't singing. So that allowed me to, like, allow space in the songs which I wish I'd learned earlier. <laughs> so we started thinking about who else to get in a new band. And we got Dan Peters, who was a drummer about town. I didn't know Dan very well, but we jammed together once. The fact that he was already playing with Dan was an added bonus because like Dan was one of my favorite drummers in town. You know, he, he was a lot younger than me. Well, it seemed like a lot younger because I was like, 26 and he was 20 when Matani started, but he was around for years and uh, playing in bands and just getting kicked out of venues because he was underage. <laughs> He's a killer drummer, so he agreed to do it, even though he was in two bands at that point. And the Melvins had just moved or they had broken up and Buzz and Dale had moved to San Francisco, leaving Matt Lucan behind. Um, he was a buddy of ours and, you know, we love the Melvins. So we thought we should get Lucan involved. So we reached out to him. He was still living in Montesano, which is right next to Aberdeen, like, you know, two hours away pretty much from Seattle. And uh, he was like, yeah, it's a long way to go just for practice. So he was coming into town for New Year's Eve. So our very first practice with all four of us was on New Year's Day, 1988. And that's kind of when we marked the birth of the band. And I have no recollection of that practice. I'm sure none of us felt very good. We meshed really well, really quickly. Lucan had some song ideas. I had a little stash of songs, and Mark was quickly getting some lyrics together for some of the things that I'd had, because I hadn't been in a real band for a couple years at that point. So I had a pile of riffs, basically, and some ideas. And the rehearsals went really quickly and really well. And we had uh, pretty much all the songs that would be on Super Fuzz Big Muff and some songs that ended up on the first self-titled record, too. We had them all within three months. We were friends with Bruce Pavitt at Sub Pop and Jonathan at Sub Pop. They were just kind of getting going as an actual label. They put out the Green River records and Soundgarden's first EP and stuff right at this point. The first Tad 7-inch came out around this time and Swallow 7-inch. So we told them we were banned. They said they wanted to put out our records, whatever it turned out to be. So we didn't really pay any dues. We already had a record label. And as soon as we said we were a band, basically, 
but we were recording our practices and Mark brought a tape into work. He worked at Muzak with Bruce Pavitt and a bunch of other musicians in the scene at the time. And I remember like after a practice where we tried to record our songs on a boom box, I gave Bruce a tape and he tried to listen to it, but it was just static basically. You know, the mic was completely overloaded by the instruments in the room. He said like, you know, I can't make sense of this. I trust you guys. How about we pay for you guys to go into the studio with Jack and Dino and, you know, just to record something and so I can even tell what you have. And we haven't played a show yet or anything like that. And so we went in and recorded, I think, five songs with Jack. And we figured, like, we should pick what we felt were the two strongest songs and put them out there as a single. And then Touch Me, I'm Sick and Sweet Young Thing, Ain't Sweet No More, came out on a 7-inch. You know, we recorded it quickly, and Jack and Dino is great at recording things quickly and not letting little things like slightly out-of-tune guitars get in the way of a performance, you know. Um, the guitar on Touch Me, I'm Sick is, Mark's guitar is really out of tune. <laughs> we didn't have a tuner at this point in our careers. We're not really tuned to anything there. I think we're a little bit low, but we're not to like E flat yet. <laughs> Jack and Dino was fantastic to work with. The only thing, and this might've been during the recording of the very first single. At one point he did say, are you sure you want your guitars to sound like this. Because, <laughs> you know, they're just so fuzzed out and wiped out that, like, there's no... Like, if we started picking a chord, you wouldn't be able to tell. And he, in Skinyard, like, that was kind of like how he played, like, sort of arpeggiated chords and whatnot. But I think he got it pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, he understood what we were doing. He knew all of us from other recording sessions. He recorded all the thrown up stuff already by that point with me and Mark. And uh, he understood he was a like-minded fellow traveler, if you will. You know, he knew what we were trying to do, but we did that first recording session and then did another recording session a couple months later to complete all the super fuzz, big muff stuff. You know, we had enough songs to play a set and I think Bruce and Jonathan were just like going and record some more. And I think this is probably a lot of it was because, you know, Green River broke up before the last Green River record was released. So they had, they had nothing really, the band wasn't even pushing that release. We didn't exist anymore. So they, you know, they were kind of scrambling in a way. They still had Soundgarden, but that was kind of it, you know, in like 1988. Um, at the time, like in the 80s, like EPs were like a, really good kind of introduction to a band, like kind of a, you know, a four to six song, 12 inch. They cost less than an al album. And, uh, you know, it just seemed like bands who did that, like were just putting their best foot forward, not just filling a, a record with crap. I love the format of a six song EP. That was really popular in the eighties in indie rock and, and underground stuff. I love the EP format. I, CDs kind of ruined things because it made, so many records, so much longer than they should have been because you could fit all this music on there. Like suddenly records are 75 minutes long. Like, ah, come on, man. I don't got that much time. <laughs> as far as need is concerned, I would say that's probably a song that's sort of like maybe influenced by like kind of the replacement side of things or, you know, it was just like a straightforward, almost pop song. Need was Mark. I really like it because it's simple kind of folk chords. And I like really simple songs, generally. You know, uh, the, the song that killed me in Green River was Tunnel of Love. I don't think I ever played that song right all the way through because it just kept changing. And these little slight changes I could never remember. And it drove me crazy. That was a song that killed me for Green River. So I, like songs like Need, I think, are just so simple and, and powerful. I really like that song. We don't play it very often. I don't think Mark likes the lyrics as much as he's gotten older. I can't believe how stupid those lyrics are. <laughs> They're just so like incredibly overly angsty and dumb. <laughs> but I guess that's just like from the perspective of someone in their mid twenties. It's hard to sing songs that you wrote when you were a 23 year old or whatever. I think sometimes for people, you know, I think there's certain songs that it just seems like maybe fake to the writer a little bit, but I, to me, it's, Stands up. Yeah, so much, so much, so much. 
Jack and Dino had a weird theory about my guitar soloing at one point. Like he's, he thinks a lot. He'll like sit there and like, you know, move his hands like this. And he goes like, I think I figured out what you're doing on your solos. You're two frets back from where you should be all the time. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. I was like, so it actually got in my head a little bit, uh, you know, for a while. I was like, am I actually two frets off? Should I be up two frets from here or something? But I thought that was funny. You know, I don't know. I try to make them sound good. I know that much. And my other big musical lesson was if it sounds really bad, you're one fret off and then move a fret, you know? So I definitely find myself pulling back if it's like, oh, that's not a good note, like moving back a fret. <laughs> if I play the song, I try to recreate the solo the same way. But they're simple. I mean, when I think of great guitar solos, I think of Louie Louie, first off. The Kingsman and the Whalers version of Louie Louie is one of the perfect guitar solos ever. Uh, Pushing Too Hard by the Seeds is also another perfect guitar solo. And they're very similar to what I'm doing in need. <laughs> Chain that door, I think in our minds, like kind of a, an homage to feed time. And that's, we both sing on it together or vocalize, I guess. He has such a distinctive voice, but he's, I think he's a little bit flat on like lots of parts of songs, but that's kind of what makes his voice so great. But it's really hard for me to do backing vocals with. And when I joined uh, this band, The Fallouts, and I had a lot of backing vocals to do, it was so easy right off the bat. I had to start thinking about why it's so hard for me to sing along with Mark sometimes. But, you know, we, we make it work. <laughs> I wanted to play slide just to get that sound, that, you know, which was cool. But I didn't know anything about open tuning yet. <laughs> so on this, on these recordings, you know, like on the very first single and this, I was just like playing standard and it's a miracle that it doesn't sound any worse than it does. <laughs> like I said, he's a fairly crude guitar player at that point. And that's why we thought the slide would be good where he didn't have to concentrate too much on the guitar and he could still, you know, concentrate on singing. That's one of the few songs that Steve actually came up with the words for. I did write some of the lyrics on that one. Yeah. There's only a handful of songs that I had any lyrical input on in Mudhoney. And that was one of them. I had that, most of that song written when I was living up in Bellingham the year before Mudhoney formed. I would say that that was inspired by the Meat Puppets. Meat Puppets 2, like, uh, What's the first song on Meat Puppets 2? I can't think of the title. But it's got kind of like... But we also then made it so grungy, if you will, that uh, you would never know that it was inspired by the Meat Puppets. One thing I like always loved about Dan's drumming is he wasn't just like a straight up rock drummer. He had like kind of a little bit of Mitch Mitchell in him, a little bit of that kind of looser, almost jazzier feel. He thinks really hard about like, you know, his drum patterns and, and coming up with something cool and, you know, unique, not just like kind of like going, you know, keeping the pace or whatever. He never did what I expected him to do on the drums in those early days. It was a bit of a learning process for us. I didn't have the greatest, steadiest rhythm at the time. So Dan sometimes could not figure out what I was trying to show him because I would change the rhythm of whatever it was I was playing. Like, uh, you got it in particular. He was like, I don't know what you're doing here. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I we kind of learned together how to blend together, you know, and he grew up loving prog rock and then got into punk rock, but kind of the, the post-punk side of punk rock. Gang of Four was one of his favorite bands. So he was coming at it from a different point of view necessarily than we were. Like he wasn't well-versed in, you know, garage rock or anything at the time. 
he's had to suffer through it for decades now, so he's well-versed now. But <laughs> um, yeah, he, his drum patterns would surprise me. And it wouldn't be exactly what I wanted, but then once we got it going, it was like, okay, that makes total sense. And I think that gave a lot of our early stuff, and still, a different sound because of his drumming. The drum patterns on No One Has and Chain That Door, I mean, those are all his. Like, you know, no one was like, hey, play it like... And I remember when this came out, like there was some... One review in the UK, which... uh, which kind of got into Dan's craw, and understandably so, uh, saying that the drumming on Chain That Door was a thoughtless barrage. <laughs> you know, which to us is like, you know, maybe that person just wants, you know, like a a steady in the background drummer, but like we didn't want that. You know, we want something to propel things and push things forward. At that time, in the early days of Mud Honey, Steve and I would actually get together, like, probably my apartment and play guitar at each other. You know, like, oh, I like that, I like that, you know. And then also things kind of came up in practice. You know, like a song like Mud Ride would actually need to be going through an amp in order to get the sustain of the the notes. You know, that's not going to work in just without any kind of amplification. So that probably did not come up in strumming unplugged guitars (laughs) in my apartment. The main riff of that might be from Mark as well, but that was definitely Spaceman 3 inspired. Some of their longer, heavy fuzz guitar workouts that they had at the time, they were a big influence on us as well. So yeah, that was definitely, that was coming from there, but I don't think we're ripping them off at all. They were just inspired by them. Mud Ride was kind of our tip of the hat to Spaceman 3, you know, droning and... We tried to write long songs, but we can't. We just sort of lose patience after a while, so we could never do like, you know, in a 15-minute extended drugged-out thing, no matter how hard we try. We just, after a while, go like, okay, that seems like long enough. So it's, a you know, like a shorter version of a, spaceman, a fake Spaceman 3 song. Like Stooges were a huge influence, and they're a huge influence on Spaceman 3, so it's all kind of like, you know, getting filtered through other things. And that is Super Fuzz Big Muff. That's like the very first time we put a record together, and Mud Ride being kind of like the slow song, that's like, we got that from like Funhouse, basically, like, well, end of side one, that's where you put dirt before like kicking it up a notch on side two. And and so, like, from that point on, almost like all of our records, at least for a good long run, like a song like Come to Mind would be, on the self-titled album, would be, like, right there, right before, at the end of side two. Or I think maybe, I mean, I'd have to look at the track listing for Every Good Boy Deserves Fudge, but I bet Broken Hands is, like, the last song on side one. You know, that's kind of the placement for, like, the... The Neil Young, Alice Cooper ballad kind of, you know, Stooges 
slower tunes. That's that's where they go. I know Mark thinks about that a lot more than I do traditionally. And at this point in the game, I leave the sequencing and the selection of songs up to Mark because we like the last couple of records we've done, we've had an excess of tracks, and I let him kind of do that because often he has a underlying bigger message in the songs and stuff, and he likes putting them together that makes sense to him. And yeah, I'm totally fine with that. I think he does a great job of sequencing the record. So he probably thought about Super Fuzz more than I did. <laughs> I'm going to guess. <laughs> Getting the sequence right on a record has always been pretty important to us. You know, both Steve and I were like uh, DJs at college radio. So, you know, you thought about like the flow of songs and, you know, when you're playing stuff on the air and like how things would fit together and like uh, I'm playing the birthday party, but I want to get to Janis Joplin. How do I make that happen? You know? And so I think that's kind of, uh, you know, the way we were thinking about sequencing records and putting them together. Yeah, Mud Rides is a super fuzz. I mean, on all those recordings, I only played with the super fuzz on. I didn't didn't think of like, hey, let's do a cleaner guitar sound or anything like that. And, you know, eventually the super fuzz broke. It just couldn't. It was a fragile thing to begin with. But like, you know, on tour, it just kind of broke down and I ended up using other stuff. But for uh, the early recordings, that was definitely the thing. Mark played a super fuzz and I played a big muff, essentially. They were both my fuzz boxes but old fuzz boxes at that point were really easy to find they were cheap if not free i mean i got more than one vintage fuzz box free back then or i'd go into a pawn shop and there'd be one for five bucks you know they were easy to find at the time they weren't as hip and collectible as they are and have been for the last 30 years that was just like old technology or whatever is an old sound that like I guess was associated with hippies, although like, you know, it's not like Crosby, Stills and Nash like was playing through fuzz boxes, but at least like 60s garage, you know, stuff, which was something that we were all into and it was like, oh, this is, this is that sound. This is that like, you must be a witch sound, you know, or, you know, satisfaction if you're not as familiar with a lollipop shop. And uh, I used to have a guitar when I was in Mr. Epp, but everything just kind of collapsed and broke at the end of that band, which I guess was sort of appropriate. And Tom Mick from Feast was desperate to sell his baby blue Hagstrom. And I bought it off of him for $80. And uh, I felt always a little bit bad about that, but you know, it was worked to my advantage. And Steve had like a, a baby blue Mustang. So Matt actually painted his precision bass baby blue uh, to match our guitars. We're probably the only band that was just like rocking baby blue guitars. Like, look how tough we are. <laughs> the Mustang, I just thought they looked really cool. That's why I ended up with one. And I was really stoked because Tom Price, who was in the human at this point in his career, the human were like in 1984, they were like the coolest band in town. And Tom played a Mustang the red one with the, the stripe on it, actually. And we just all thought it was the coolest guitar. And my sister's boyfriend, one of his uh, brothers at his frat, had a Mustang for sale for 200 bucks. So I bought it. <laughs> but I loved the Mustang because it looked cool and had a 60s vibe to it. And to me, with the Big Muff, I could get that tone that the Stooges and Blue Cheer had. And I know they were playing very different gear than I was. They were playing, you know, Marshall Stacks and Giant Sun amps and SGs and whatnot. But to me, the Mustang had that kind of tone, like kind of woody, deeper tone with the neck pickup. And I love the vibrato bar because you didn't even have to have a bar in it. Like the bridge, if you hit the bridge with your hand, it would do this really fast kind of vibrato. And that reminded me of Link Ray. 
so it was a perfect guitar for me at the time. It's funny, I don't play the Mustang much anymore because it feels like a toy in my hands now. It feels so tiny. I can't make it work. It's like like my fingers got fat or something. You know, I'm an old man now, so the Mustang doesn't work anymore for me. They're cool guitars. They're small. They were cheap at the time. They stopped being cheap. <laughs> this is funny. In 92, probably, I needed a, a new guitar. I wanted to get another Mustang. And I could buy them cheaper. Like I bought two matching blue uh, competition stripe ones. They were cheaper for me to buy in Hollywood than Seattle because they were such a hot commodity in Seattle. But everybody wanted a Mustang, but nobody cared about them in the bigger picture yet, you know. If I hit the wah-wah, I want it to be kind of going crazy. I don't think there's any Mud Honey song where I'm doing a really rhythmic wah-wah thing. It's usually just getting wild with the wah. And Ron Ashton definitely did that. And I mean, I've got so many guitar heroes. Link Ray is always in my mind. Bo Diddley, always there in my mind. Because they're kind of wild. They get wild. You know, it's not a mapped out solo necessarily. It's just kind of going off the rails or trying to go off the rails. Well, Steve never maps out his solos. To me, he's one of the most interesting people who play guitar solos. Cause he doesn't just kind of like play the scale and it's not like, you know, kind of like normal guitar playing is uh, still like pretty innovative. And it's more, I guess, like kind of an abstract expressionist approach as opposed to a paint by numbers approach. And I think that's a little bit more freeing and more fun and more interesting. sixties garage and psychedelic stuff. That's always there. You know, in my mind, I have literally hundreds of sixties garage compilation LPs. <laughs> and I don't really even necessarily know the names of the bands that are on them. I just think of it as one big teenage band from 1966 <laughs> that put out a lot of records, all that local Northwest garage rock was, and still is a huge influence that was made apparent to me by going to record stores in Seattle. That heritage was looming large as soon as I started buying punk rock records. I was aware of the Sonics and the Whalers, Paul Revere and the Raiders, even though they're officially from Boise, where I'm at right now. But yeah, the Northwest stuff, the Kingsmen, Portland area band. Um, I mean, did anyone ever rock as hard as the Sonics? I'm not sure. no one has together we're pretty much thinking of it as like kind of a wipers thing like the drive of the drums but you know of course that has slide guitar so that's not wipers but uh you know like steve's driving riff and the bass line and the drums kind of felt like an offshoot when we were kind of forming the song it kind of reminded us a little bit of the wipers another northwest influence on us and all these songs came together so quickly there wasn't a whole lot of thought but usually in my mind, I always try to think of something that I think it sounds like, either good or bad. Like, you know, what are we accidentally ripping off, <laughs> if you will? And sometimes it's like, great, we're ripping it off, you know, cool. Other times like, ah, let's change this a little bit because it's too much like something else that we could think of.
I don't know who came up with that riff. That might have been a Matt Lucan thing, actually. You know, Mark had that great slide guitar on it. And, you know, I'm just doing basic open chords for most of that song and sliding up a little bit. But, uh, but yeah, that's one of my favorite songs on the EP for sure. We still play that one live. I mean, we play a lot of the songs live. We don't really do Need much, like I said. Well, that one's dramatic, but it feels a lot better to me than Need. You know, it's not like a relationship song so much. Uh, it's more just like a, I got my back against a wall kind of song. <laughs> I'm not sure what what I felt the oppression was <laughs> at the time. I thought that was a great song and I think it's still a great song and there's a lot of great interplay between the guitars and the bass you know and that was a song where I you know the guitars would stop and there would be vocals and then the guitars would start again you know <laughs> we were learning about arranging things Me and Mark together came up with, if I think, just if I think, I think of you. That was something I remember walking down the street and one of us saying that and we kind of riffing on it and we, you know, it made us laugh and a song came out of that. If I think was for sure a Steve song top to bottom and I had most of the lyrics together, except I didn't quite have, you know, the hook or whatever. And I was like, I think I was talking to Steve Steve, like maybe the line would be like, when I think, and Steve thought about it for, for a bit. And then it was like, how about if I think, <laughs> which is just way funnier. Um, <laughs> and so we went with that, of course. If I Almost like I had the whole thing kind of mapped out and was kind of good to go pretty early on. I don't really remember. I'm pretty sure that was my lick. I think the middle part might have been a Lucan thing too. Might have been Mark. I know I didn't write all the music to that song, but I, the main little intro lick was me. And then we kind of just added the heavier parts to it. And But uh, yeah, I, I don't really remember exactly. We had that lick and we had that little stupid lyric to base the song around. And then Mark wrote the rest of the lyrics. My point of view, I wanted to have as many different dynamics as we could, just getting all the different influences and blending them together. I mean, Velvet Underground is very apt. Like, they're still one of the greatest bands ever. Yeah, I, I think we were just trying to make a fairly diverse record because, again, like, I wasn't sure how many records we were going to make. So we were trying to get it all out there as fast as we could.
Matt, I know, like, he had the riff for In and Out of Grace. And then, like, as a band, we arranged it as an homage to the songs on the first Blue Cheer record. Matt brought all the music to In and Out of Grace to us. So, I mean, there was definitely a unified sound right there. That was, that was one of our first really good songs, I think. And that was all Lucan. And it was more complicated than what I would have come up with. Oh, he was a great bass player. And he was coming from a very tight and fairly rigid band, the Melvins. You know, they were really well rehearsed and some really complicated arrangements in their early songs, you know, like that first EP and the first album that he's on. You know, he relaxed through the years with us because <laughs> he realized it didn't, it wasn't the same band. He could be Lucan a little bit more. I think Matt, like, who was really relieved when he joined our band because the songs weren't proggy and super complicated. And he's like, hey, I can just drink in this band. <laughs> and not sweat it through the shows. Um, he was kind of the most, like, rock guy of all of us. Like, he remained a huge fan of, like, Motorhead and, and ACDC. Like, a lot of people in, like, punk rock and hardcore, there was, like, a, a time when they would, you know, like, disavow the records that they bought before they got into punk rock and hardcore. You know, there's sort of, like, this year zero mentality. Matt was... Never like that. You know, he went to arena shows as well as tiny punk rock shows. He had some great riffs coming into the band and he'd had them stockpiled for a while, I think. And uh, he blended so well and effortlessly with Dan right off the bat. I mean, they became best buddies, roommates, you know, through all Lucan's years in the band. You know, um, they were definitely a really perfectly executed rhythm team. It's kind of like Touch Me, I'm Sick, and it's like I had this idea of, which was basically the title, and then had the right words around it. <laughs> I, some of the verses are a little bit more successful than others, I think. Uh, uh, I think the second one is maybe the drag on the song. <laughs> I think kind of growing up in like sort of a Christian environment, it was just kind of fun to be sort of a little bit sacrilegious Without, like, diving into, like, the whole, like, satanic bullshit. That was his frame of mind back then. You know, he was he was definitely dabbling in the dark side of life at that point. And uh, he was singing about it. Kim Thao used to think it was brilliant, the line, oh, God, how I love to hate. At this point, that kind of makes me cringe a little bit, you know, because, you know, I, I think the world actually does need love, sweet love. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's plenty to be angry about, you know. We thought it was great. You know, it was such a different rhythmic pulse than what me or Mark would have come up with. You know, it was kind of an epic song. And, you know, we added Dan's drum solo to make it even more epic. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was kind of like a, an early centerpiece, I think, and still is. Well, what I remember about In and Out of Grace was that it was like Matt's riff, which was really cool. And we we're trying to think what to do with it. And... We just sort of threw in the blue chair bass and drum break and then a dual out-of-tune guitar solo like on the first blue chair record. And I remember Dan was really hesitant initially about doing that kind of bass and drum break because, you know, like drum solos at the time were like pretty fucking uncool. 
unless you were into arena rock. But if you're into punk rock, that was just like no one did drum solos, <laughs> which was kind of to us the funny part about doing it. Our people love that song too. And, you know, we don't play that song every show, but we probably should. <laughs> Same like with Touch Me, I'm Sick, you know, we have to play that song every show, or I feel like an asshole if we don't. We definitely closed a lot of shows with In and Out of Grace and still do. You know, um, Dan gets kind of burnt out on it after a while because he's got to do that big drum solo. But uh, through the years, it's morphed a little bit. You know, Guy and Dan have really worked on the drum solo part where it's kind of more coordinated between the two of them. Like me and Mark drop out completely and they kind of do this thing where they start and stop. Like guy will come and go and it's more dynamic now than it used to be for sure. It was just kind of craziness in the early days. And once Dan did his famous drum roll, bringing us back in, me and Mark would just go crazy. <laughs> we don't go crazy as much anymore. <laughs> We're too old. No, no flying across the stage anymore. <laughs> you know, in and out of grace, it was both me and Mark going kind of wild and doing different things. You know, Mark is a much different guitar player now than he was in 1988. He's much better and more thoughtful about it, which I, I guess is good. I love the, the crudity of the early Mudhoney stuff too, though. And I try to, to remind myself of that sometimes, like not to overthink it and just kind of try to get lost in the guitar on certain moments like that, you know, um, I do it without the Wawa for the first half. And then I hit the Wawa at some point when it feels like I should hit the Wawa and then let it kind of hopefully make it more crazy. Yeah. Mostly it's the time to freak out. Yeah, I remember getting the test pressing for it and just being really kind of stoked. Like, hey, we sound like a real band. <laughs> and we were hitting different things. Like, it wasn't like we're a band with just sort of like one thing. As much as I love Discharge or Motorhead or ACDC, there was a kind of a ebb and flow and kind of more of a ride of like different feelings or whatever, you know, different tempos on the record. And it ends with a, a monster. <laughs> you know, it came out in the fall of 1988 and we hit the road. You know, we did a full U.S. tour, most almost all the U.S. We went to the East Coast and through the Midwest and whatnot and came back to Seattle and then went down the West Coast and into Texas with Sonic Youth. Like I said, we didn't pay any dues. We had Sonic Youth knighting us, if you will, as you know, the next cool thing. And that helped us an awful lot. And we were playing to big crowds down in California that we wouldn't have been able to on our own. You know, um, they helped us a lot. So we had a hit label behind us. We were feeling pretty good about what we were doing and kind of taking advantage of it. The first single and then Superfuzz Big Muff were like received really well, kind of like in the underground, you know, fanzine world, except maybe Conflict. I think Gerard Cosley stepped all over touch me i'm sick when that, <laughs> the first seven inch i think he said it reminded him of like uh sweet young thing ain't sweet no more was something that brett michaels could have written <laughs> and i don't think that's true <laughs> it was the beginning of something you know i had no idea where it was gonna go but we were taking advantage of it as best we could and taking every opportunity that was offered to us, either from Sub Pop or the UK label or going to Europe and 
early 89, you know, whatever, whatever we were offered, we were taking basically at that point. Without Sub Pop, I mean, we would have just been another band in some town that like maybe put out a record. Probably not. You know, I mean, we didn't have any money and there were, you know, lots of really cool bands all over the U.S. that, you know, didn't have the same kind of traction. And I think it's just largely because they didn't really have the infrastructure, you know, helping them out. And, you know, we were very, very lucky to be friends with Bruce and Jonathan. And I think they were lucky to be friends with us. I don't really look back all that often. I'm not like a super nostalgic person. Uh, it was definitely a point where things opened up for us. You know, like Green River tried touring and it was never easy. And the very first half of our first U.S. tour wasn't super easy, but we actually had a booking agent who set up shows for us, which Green River never did. And then the second half of it, we met up with Sonic Youth and went down the West Coast to Texas with them. And, you know, I, I remember those guys, like, asking us, like, how much do you want for a show? And I was just thinking about, like, Green River Tours. And I'm like, huh? How about 100 bucks? And they're like, we'll give you 200 You'll need it. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, and then, then going to Europe, especially in the U.K., opening up for Sonic Youth that following spring, that was just nuts. I certainly didn't think I'd still be in Mudhoney 35 years later. You know, I, I really thought it would last two years tops. That's what I told my folks, and that's what I truly believed. I tried to go back to college, you know, even, and, you know, kind of stalled out again on that. And, uh, you know, I love playing music, so it was hard to, to leave it. But I, there's been lots of career highlights, I guess. There still are. I mean, I, I'm really happy with our new record. Uh, we're playing great live right now, and we still like each other. <laughs> so that's all it's all good <laughs> we got lucky getting the four of us together i think because it blended really well really quickly and it wasn't just one person's vision or anything like that it was the four of us you know kind of coming together effortlessly i can't think of it describing it any better way yeah when, when the band got together we we worked really quickly you know it's kind of amazing how quickly things came together this is kind of a weird thing to say you know like because it maybe sounds a little bit like I'm patting myself on the back, but um, my wife is like, you know, like she's watched some of the footage from the Berlin Independence Days, which is before our very first tour. She's like, it's amazing how kind of together and fully formed you were right at, at the beginning. But, you know, we at that point I was 26. You know, it wasn't like we were teenagers. It's kind of amazing how quickly and easily everything fell into place, and I think it's just a combination of the right people. Well, from my point of view, I think Super Fuzz Big Muff is the first 12-inch record we made, and it remains so. <laughs> no, it was the beginning of our thing, and uh, you know, I understand why it's, it holds a real place in people's hearts to this day. You know, if, if we hadn't have made another record, I would have been very satisfied. Visit lifeoftherecord.com for more information about Mudhoney. You'll also find a full transcript of this episode and a link to purchase Superfuzz Big Muff. Instrumental music by Hot Lunch. Thanks for listening.